Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. you have just heard was described by the great Marxist Frederick Engels as the Marseillaise of the 16th century. It is a hymn written by Martin Luther, the author, if you like, of the Reformation, which is called Einfeste Burg. Uh, I will spare you my singing voice and I will just... Uh, perhaps from memory, quote the words of this uh, remarkable hymn, which became the battle song of the Protestant Reformation, which, really speaking, was the beginning of the bourgeois revolution throughout Europe. Einfeste Burg in English is, uh, let me see, a safe stronghold our God is still, a trusty shield and weapon. He'll help us clear from all the ill that hath us now o'ertaken. The ancient prince of hell hath risen with purpose fell. Strong male of caste and power he weareth in this hour. On earth is not his equal. With force of arms we nothing can. Full soon we were downridden. But with us fights the proper man whom God himself hath bidden. Ask ye, who is this same? Christ Jesus is his name. The Lord Saboeth's son. He and no other one shall conquer in this battle. And were this world all demons o'er and watching to devour us, we lay it not to heart so sore, not they shall overpower us. And let the prince of ill look grim as e'er he will. He scares us not one bit. For why his doom is writ, a word shall quickly slay him. A word shall quickly slay him, shall slay the existing powers of the state and the Roman Catholic Church. And what word, what, what, might, what word might that be? Well, here it is. 
I've got it in front of me. You've seen this before, I think. It's the Bible. The Word of God, the revealed Word of God. Which, by the way, for over a thousand years of alleged Christianity, uh, this uh, Word, this Word of God was denied. People were denied access to this Word. You couldn't read the Bible. No, because the Bible was in a foreign tongue. It was in Latin. And most of the people, apart from the educated uh, caste of priests and bishops and monks and the clergy, they couldn't read Latin. Therefore, they had no idea what's, what was in this book. And then, of course, at a certain stage, I'm talking about the, a little bit before the period that we're discussing, in the 16th century, some very courageous people translated this, uh, this word of God, this Bible, into German, starting with Martin Luther, a remarkable translation in the German language. So the Bible suddenly came into the hands of ordinary people. Now, this is dynamite. You probably don't realize this, but it is. This, <laughs> this uh, book, which you've all heard of, because you've not read it, but it's dynamite what's in this book. Uh, the first English translation, of course, there's a remarkable translation done in the reign of uh, King James, that's the beginning of the period which we're discussing here, called the King James's Bible, which is said by many people to be the only work of literary genius that was ever written by a committee, which I suppose in a sense is true. It was a committee responsible for, for writing this once the Protestant religion became the official religion in this country. Yes, but it actually is based on an earlier translation by a very courageous man, one of the heroes of the Reformation, called William Tyndale, who translated the Bible before that, and for his pains, this unfortunate man was trapped by Henry VIII, who at that stage was still a, an ardent, convinced Catholic. He was entrapped and he was uh, murdered, in fact, by, uh, by Henry in the most brutal uh, manner. Incidentally, at that time, Henry VIII was, as I say, a, a convinced, ardent Catholic. I remember as a, as a kid, as a child, being fascinated by what was written on the coins, like uh, there was uh, a two and six penny coin and so on and so forth. And even the penny, which was a huge, uh, very large coin in those days, which was worth something still. And I remember being uh, puzzled by the, the words which went around with the expressions, Ind imp fid def Georgius rex, which of course meant George the king, uh, emperor of India, which he was still at that stage, and Fidi Rek, Fidi Defensor, Defender of the Faith. And this was a title actually given to Henry VIII by the Pope of Rome for his defense of uh, precisely of Roman Catholicism. Henry, Henry VIII even, even wrote a book in defense of, of, uh, of Roman Catholicism. Yes, he was the fiery defender, the defender of the, of the faith. Until that is, he broke, as I explained last week, he broke with Rome, not for any particular religious reasons, but because he wanted a, a male heir and he needed a divorce. I've dealt with this the story as well. No. But as I also explained last week, this break with Rome in England was only half a reformation. Henry VIII was not particularly interested in the, uh, the creed and the doctrine of the church, except insofar as it influences legal case for a divorce, that's all. 
And he left, more or less, he was quite happy to, although he was the head of the church instead of the Pope, which made it a Protestant church theoretically, the whole uh, uh, ideas of doctrines and ceremonial of the church remained virtually untouched. Untouched until a bit later on. L later on, he discovered a very interesting fact that this uh, Protestantism could be a money spinner because the church had a lot of money. The Roman church, the, the monasteries, the church in general had colossal wealth in its, uh, in its hands, which he needed, all these monarchs, these absolute monarchs, both, uh, both the, uh, the Tudors and the, the Stuarts. They needed money and therefore, of course, he confiscated the property of the church. He sent his uh, bourgeois capitalist agents in and uh, they took over the monasteries, they wrecked them, they kicked out the monks, causing a huge increase in unemployment. But there was a large number of unemployed monks and nuns uh, roaming the countryside. Um, yes, of course, he, he, he got a lot of money out of this. With this, a whole new layer of society was created. The gentry was uh, powerfully power, reinforced by the Caesar of the church lands, not by ordinary people, of course, but by a new, cast, a new class of gentry, which, about which we'll speak uh, a bit later on. After Henry's death, his son, uh, Edward, who was a Protestant and a member of the Protestant faction of the English court, decided to take the Reformation one step further. He was a convinced Protestant, and therefore, under Edward, you had the further you know, sacking of the church, People were let loose on, uh, fanatical Protestants were let loose to, to smash, the, uh, smash the, the, the idols and the statues and break the, the uh, stained glass windows and so on and so forth. Now, what's, what's the reason? Let's look at this question of Protestantism and, Catholic, and Catholicism a little more closely. As I explained last week, you see, all these religious movements ultimately... Of course, it's a complicated question. There are many issues involved, but ultimately, in the last time, you will find that there are always class interests involved. As a general rule, you could say in history that whenever an idea is put forward, any idea is put forward, and gets mass support, you can be sure that ultimately it reflects the interests of a particular group or class within society. That was the case here. There's no, no doubt about it. If you were to ask me, what is the fundamental... Uh, doctrinal difference between Catholicism and uh, Protestantism, because there are many differences, difference in uh, liturgy, difference in ceremonial, difference in the, the way the church was organized and so on. Yes, but doctrinal difference, well, there were some, there were several, of course, but perhaps the most central one was this. It's the difference between salvation by works and salvation by faith. The Roman Catholic Church believed, and still believes as far as I know, in, in the doctrine of salvation by good works, which in those days meant fundamentally giving a lot of money to the church to build huge churches and cathedrals and, which dominated the cities and the, and the villages of the land. And of course kept the, uh, the bishops in a, in a style to which they became accustomed. If you accept the Protestant idea of salvation by faith alone, that's to say, let's be clear about it. If I believe in Jesus Christ and the, uh, the word in this book, the word of the Lord expressed in this good book, if I believe in Jesus, then I am saved, fundamentally. It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's basically the idea. You can save yourself through faith alone. Now, 
think about it from a capitalist point of view, from the standpoint of the nascent bourgeoisie, which, as Marx explains, was in the stage of primitive accumulation of capital. This is a very convenient doctrine. You see, uh, uh, salvation by faith is a lot cheaper than salvation by, by works, which are expensive. It's a little bit, if you like, in the, in the 19th century, that the slogan of the bourgeois liberals in England and elsewhere was uh, cheap government. Cheap government, that's still their slogan today, as a matter of fact. Yes, but in those days, in the 16th and 17th century, it was like the slogan of the bourgeois was a bit different. It was cheap religion. And the whole idea, the whole ethos of saving and thrift and austerity and hard work and so on, this, uh, the Protestant uh, virtues preached by Luther and Calvin in particular, this really fitted in with the aspirations of, of the nascent bourgeoisie. That's why if you look at the portraits, it's interesting. You want to see the difference between the roundheads and cavaliers? Look at the portraits. Go to the, go to the National Gallery in London or the, 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 the National Portrait Gallery and you'll see the, the extravagant dress of the cavaliers with their plumes and their long hair and so on and so on. They, they, they jewelry, etc. And compare that to the pictures of the bourgeois. Black and white, simple dress. In Holland, that's the case. Look at the, the paintings of the, of the Dutch bourgeois in the period of Rembrandt. You'll see this. There you see the, the difference, the churches. Well, that's an interesting point. The, word, the Spanish word for the church is iglesia. The French word is iglesia, the same word. Welsh word is eglois and so on and so on. It comes from the, the, the Greek word ecclesia. Yes, but ecclesia does not mean a building at all. It's not, once you translate it, you understand it isn't a building at all. Ecclesia means a gathering. It doesn't mean a building, like these huge colossal cathedrals that dominated the landscape. I'm thinking in particular in England, if you go to a place called Ely, which still exists in Cambridgeshire, where Oliver Cromwell was, was active in his younger days in the Revolution, there's a, there's a coral, it's a, the landscape is completely flat. It's in the fens. I'll have something to say about the fens in a moment. But the, the, it's, it's flat, flat as a pancake, as far as the eye can see. And in the middle of this flat landscape, there's a colossal cathedral, a huge spire. Yes, these churches dominated the landscape the same as the church dominated society. And by the way, the structure of the church also was extremely hierarchical, with the bishops, the pope at the top, of course, the bishops, the clergy coming down. It was a replica of the, the hierarchical, hierarchical structure of feudal society. So that's an important point. Yes, but you see, if you read the Bible, I think it's in Matthew chapter 28, I think. It's in Matthew anyway. Uh, Jesus Christ says, wheresoever, Three or four of you are gathered in my, uh, in my name. There am I in your midst. It's nothing to do with the building. The early Christians, they didn't have churches because they were, they were illegal. They were underground. They were persecuted by the Roman Empire. They didn't have buildings at all. They met in secret places, in caves, in the, in the woods, anywhere they could meet. As a persecuted revolutionary movement, that's what they were. Now, the word Puritan... You see, it, it speaks for itself. What it means, it was a desire to return the Christian church to its early beginnings, the early purity of the early Christians who were the religion of the poor, of the dispossessed, and so on. No priests, no bishops, no hierarchies, 
no lavish cathedrals, no stained glass windows, no images. Now that's an interesting point. The Roman Catholic Church is full of images, statues of saints. Who are these saints that are worshipped? In the, they say that they're not worshipped. They were, of course, worshipped. And still are worshipped, I think, by many people who consider these statues have got real life. This was anathema to the, the Puritans who believed that there was one God alone. And of course, uh, the Bible says, there's a couple of the Ten Commandments, which everyone, every Christian ought to know what it is. The Second Commandment, have you forgotten the Second Commandment? The second, there are ten of them. The Second one says quite clearly, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, no idols. It's clear in black and white. And once the Bible was translated, so everyone could read what it said, then of course people became outraged by what they considered to be deviations from the, the true word of God. And therefore, when these people, and there was a lot of people, really poor people, stormed the churches uh, and uh, cathedrals and monasteries, and smashed the images, iconoclasm is the word that was used, smashed the statues and smashed the, and, and covered up the paintings with, with whitewash and so forth. Nowadays, got the art historians go a bit crazy about this, but what horrible people who fancy destroying valuable works of art. Yes, but what you must understand, I mean, I'm sorry that valuable works of art were in fact lost, that's a pity. But what you must understand is the class motivation here. These are poor people with a revulsion for anything that's rich and ornate and expensive and extravagant and luxurious. This asceticism, which by the way, you find in all popular revolutions an element of asceticism, <coughs> is, is, is a revolutionary uh, motor force, if you like. So that un undoubtedly was the case. But now I think what we must establish is, uh, I made a statement, which uh, Perhaps some of you may agree or disagree with it. Let's try this and prove it a little bit. When I said that all these religious tendencies ultimately reflect class, a class content. Now, what was the class background to this in, in, uh, in England? Well, it was, as I said, the period of the uh, primitive accumulation of capital. It had certain consequences. But of course, there were different classes in society. The class contradictions were very sharp. Far sharper than what people uh, believe or think. Far sharper than what historians have been prepared to contemplate. Up until recently, when there's unfortunately been a bit of a change in the analysis of the English Revolution, there's a lot of interesting writers. I'm thinking particularly of a writer called Brian Manning, who did extraordinarily good work in exposing this, this class question, the class antagonisms, which lie behind the English Revolution. Most of the people were living in, in conditions of desperate poverty, and things were getting worse, particularly the period leading up to the English Revolution, the years 1620 to 1650. Uh, some historians have said that these were, they were years of permanent depression, if you like, economic depression, which hit, hit the poorest people very hard. People were struggling to exist, struggling to live in desperately harsh conditions. Some historians have eventually say that this was the most terrible crisis, terrible economic crisis in history. We'll, we'll wait to see what happens in the next 12 months as a result of the present crisis, but that's another matter. It was a terrible crisis. 
we have to understand at this stage, when we talk about the working class, it's the embryonic working class, same as if you like, it's the embryonic capitalist class that we're talking about in its early beginnings. The, the, the age of industry had not yet uh, dawned in, in England, although it was in advance for many, most countries in Europe. It was in advance, but nevertheless, there was no industry as we would know it today. Most of the industrial work was centered on the wool industry, as I mentioned, I think, last week. And most of this was not, well, practically all of it was not conducted in factories, as you'd expect, but in people's homes, where whole families were involved in handicrafts. And they, in turn, were exploited ruthlessly by, by middlemen. Prices continued to rise throughout this period, and wages continually uh, lagged behind. Uh, and, of course, this hit the, the, all sections. The only other sections of industry, nascent industry that you could think about, was mining, particularly coal mining. That experienced a boom because of the demand for coal, which was cheaper than wood. But wood had become terribly expensive as a result of the, the enormous increase in demand for the big cities like London and Bristol and Newcastle and so on. So big landowners, feudal landowners, who discovered coal on their estates, have opened up coal mines in conjunction with the capitalists. Now, that's an interesting point, which I will develop later on, that there was a growing relationship, uh, a growing together, if you like, of a section of the the old landed nobility and the rising capitalist and merchant classes, some landowners bought uh, bought shares and became partly involved in, in business, whereas uh, many wealthy capitalists purchased land and became landowners. So there wasn't a clear distinction. I'll come back to that question a little later later on. But you see, you had the coal miners who lived, who worked under desperate conditions. I mean, just imagine. Coal mining has always been a terribly dangerous and uh, difficult and harsh uh, working environment. Always has been. But of course, now it's, it's, in those days, there was no question of health and security, no, no health and safety. People were working in, under in, in incredibly bad conditions. Whole families, by the way, the women and children also were sent down the lines. So bad was the situation that although feudalism had formally been abolished legally, uh, in, many, in many cases the landowners re reintroduced feudal measures in order to force their tenants to go and work down the mines. Things were even worse, by the way, in the lead mines, which lead is a poison, as you well know, and the tin mines in Cornwall and so on and so forth. But apart from that, you couldn't speak of any industry in the sense, in the modern sense. That age is not yet dawn. And we have to remember that four-fifths of the working population still worked on the land. Yes, but most of those also were desperately poor. You had the big landowning classes at the top of society, of course, the wealthy landowners uh, who provided the main basis for the monarchy and the state and, the, uh, and Charles during the Civil War. Many of these were obscenely rich, tremendously rich, and they were probably about, I think it's 1688, the figure that's, that's after the Civil War, the figure of 7,000 families I've, I've read somewhere. That's probably about it. 7,000 wealthy families dominated the whole of society. And they dominated it politically. They controlled, in effect, the House of Lords, the government, with, with the court clique at the top. I will deal with, deal with that next, uh, next week. But you see, you had the, the very rich landlords, and then a new class, relatively new class of gentry, which I've already mentioned. They, 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 they then 
enriched themselves. Yes, and this voracious class of upstarts enriched themselves by means of taking over the lands of the peasantry. We're talking about the period of the disintegration, of the final disintegration of feudalism. And of course, this, this meant, uh, above all, enclosures. Because the peasants in, in the, throughout the land still possessed what is known as the common lands. Even today, it's the common, you know, Clapham Common and so on. But the commons that still exist. Lands where, which are not owned by anyone but the, but the people, but the generality. And everyone has got access to these lands. Now, nowadays, it's to take walks or to stroll around with your, with, with your dog insofar as you're allowed to leave your house at all. But in those days, it was much more serious than that. Many poor people just scraped a living, managed to survive somehow, among other things, by grazing their geese on the commons and by other things. One of the most serious uh, enclosures, this, this process of, of, of grabbing, of stealing the land, land grabbing, it was in effect, stealing the traditional lands of the poor peasants. This went on continually throughout the Tudor period and also throughout the, the reign of King, King James, right up to the Civil War. And it provoked uh, extreme uh, antagonism in the countryside, ferocious resistance of the peasants against the enclosures. The most ferocious of all was in the, the Fen country, where Oliver Cromwell, as I said, was active. This area around Cambridge. The draining of the great fens. The fens was marshland. Bogs, marshland, not suitable for farming. It was drained for a, throughout a period of decades. And this drain, drainage of, of the Great Fen, which is rise from Lincolnshire to uh, Cambridge, deprived thousands of poor people of the, the rights they'd always had to graze their geese and to uh, uh, fish and to take wood and to uh, uh, hunt uh, waterfowl, ducks and so on and so forth. They were deprived. And therefore there was a series of uprisings which intensified precisely in, in the, around the, the year 1642, when the English Civil War began, so that the agrarian revolution undoubtedly was part of this, no, no question about that. There was a, a famous poem going around uh, about this time, which I'm quoting from memory. It goes like this. The law, the law looks, locks up the man or woman that steals the goose from off the common, but leaves the bigger villain loose that steals the common from the goose. This was a big uh, question. But of course, these enclosure acts and the disintegration of feudalism and the closure of the monarchies creates a, a, an enormous army of surplus labor. That was one of the causes of the rise of capitalism later on. Of unemployed people, a vast army of unemployed surplus labor, of vagabonds, of tramps, sometimes resorting to thievery and robbery and so on, breakdown of law and order, strolling, Actors, strolling, jugglers, and peddlers, and gypsies, and all kinds of, of people who gravitated inevitably towards the towns and cities, particularly London. You know, there's an old fairy story, Dick Whittington, that uh, he went to London because he was told that the streets of London were paved with gold. Well, they certainly weren't paved with gold. They were rather covered in all kinds of uh, rubbish and animal and human excrement, and they didn't smell very nice. So they certainly weren't paved with gold, although there were very rich people living in London, of course. But there was a vast army of poor people, of downtrodden people, of unemployed, of dock workers, of uh, building laborers, of uh, watermen, boatmen, and so on and so forth. Thieves, of course, and uh, all kinds of uh, 
well, you might say the lumpen proletariat. And this, of course, was seething. These people were seething with discontent. Seething with discontent. And this, this discontent, naturally, in the, in the prevailing society, had to find an expression in religion, which is the same thing nowadays as politics. Oh, yes. Religion and politics are inextricably mixed up. The higher class, the upper class, the landowners, the court clique, and so on, what, what we might call uh, Episcopalians. From the word episkopos, which means a bishop. And they, 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 they really, the, the Anglican Church, as I said last time, maintained all the hierarchy of priests and bishops and so on, which uh, the Catholic Church had uh, maintained in the past. Something which people detested. Because once they got hold of this, this transitional, transitional program of the, of the period, then they had no use for priests. In the past, the priest told them what to think. The priest told them what was in the Bible. Let me, let me just be, you know, you all know what the Bible says, that it's, uh, it's uh, more difficult for a, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's what it says. Let me just read something from the Bible, if I may, if I can get hold of it. Hang on a second. Here we are. Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have, you have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers fields which, which, which of you is kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have, which have reaped, which have reaped, have entered into the years of the Lord of Sabaoth. Powerful, powerful stuff. Revolutionary stuff. Class stuff which people read avidly. And they said, this is it, this is it. And we don't need priests, and we don't need bishops, and we don't need any of this. All we need is the Bible in our hand, and the Spirit of the Lord in our heart, and that's it, end of story. Now this is revolutionary stuff, you must understand. You see, church and state in those days were, were inextricably linked. Charles I himself said on one occasion that the church is the, the chiefest, what he said, the chiefest, yeah, the chiefest support for legal authority. That's Charles I. He said that to his son. Don't forget this. Gerard Win Winston, he became the main spokesman for the most radical uh, leveler movement, the true levelers or diggers, he said. He referred to kings, bishops, and other state of officers. In other words, he considered the state as part, the church rather, as part of the state, which it was. You know, Charles and the, and the, the court clique and the ruling understood. You take away the, 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 the church, the official church, and you take away the state. And therefore, the two were, were distinctly linked. So when the Puritans rose up against the Episcopalian system, against the bishops, the, the war cry went up. Uh, no popes, no bishops. That was one of the main slogans uh, of the revolution. Well, that was a revolutionary slogan at that particular period. Now, I don't have much time to go into detail. We'll refer, we'll refer again to this question. But the, the level of class antagonism 
at this stage was brutal. There was a Scottish observer at the, uh, at the, at the early part of the 17th century who actually made the point. Here we are. Scottish observer, Christopher Hill quotes him. A Scottish observer indeed commented in 1614 on the bitter and distrustful attitude of English common people towards the gentry and nobility. This is a fact. There was a colossal feeling of anger against the existing system and all its works, starting with, with religion. And, of course, this is reflected in an attitude, in a hostile attitude towards the church. Again, I have some interesting quotes here, if I can find it. Uh -huh. Here we are. As early as 1589, Bishop Cooper, Cooper warned of, and I quote, the loathsome contempt hatred and disdain, which the most part of, of, of men, of, of the, the most part of men in these days, bear towards the ministers of the Church of God. I think that's uh, coming from the horse's mouth. Oh yes, and Archbishop Stanley added, quote, the ministers of the world are become contemptible in the eyes of the basest sort of people. The basest sort of people, of course, are the poor, downtrodden, downtrodden oppressed masses. In, in, in society. I got a nice quote here from a person, I don't know if this person's a woman, and women, by the way, were becoming very active in these churches, these left-wing churches, as we will see. A woman by the name of Joan, uh, Joan Hobie of Collinbrook in, in, in Buckinghamshire was quoted as saying in 1634 that, quote, she did not care a pin or a fart for my Lord Grace of Canterbury, that was the Archbishop Lord, who was all-powerful in the land at that time, as we will see in a future uh, episode. Did not care a pin or a fart for my Lord Grace of Canterbury, and she hoped that she should live to see him hanged. <laughs> That's good. And he was actually ex executed 11 years later. I don't know whether she was allowed, allowed to see it. I hope that she was. But that was, that was the kind of mood, the mood that existed, you know. And of course, uh, as I again re re referred to last week, the Episcopalians, the, uh, the High Anglicans, that was the Church of Reaction. That was like the Tory party, right, right wing of the Tory party, if you like. Its main base was in the upper house, the House of Lords. Then you had the House of Commons, mainly, of course, these distinctions are not entirely clear for reasons which I can explain. but. Uh, reflecting that the rising bourgeoisie, in a religious sense, these were Presbyter Presbyterians, not Anglicans. The Presbyterian Church is the Church of the bourgeoisie, the Church of the rich merchants, and so on and so forth. To their left again is the Independents, people like Oliver Cromwell, and then these other sects which I mentioned last week. Last week, the sectaries, the sects, which flourished at the time like mushrooms after a thunderstorm. They were emerging. And it's not an accident that in, in this cauldron of discontent that these sects, these revolutionary sects, because that's what they were, were emerging. People like the Quakers, the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, the Anabaptist, that's an interesting movement. In Germany, the Anab Anabaptists were extreme left-wing revolutionaries and communists. A man by the uh, uh, Engels wrote about that in his book, uh, The Peasant War in Germany. 
Thomas Mincer was the leader of the Anabaptists who read a communist re revolution uh, at the time and was brutally murdered and they were put down as a result. You have the, the, the fifth monarchy, which I mentioned last time. Then again, it's a strange name. The, these guys, they'd read the, they all read the Bible and they, they, they derived a theory from a reading of, uh, I think it's the book of Daniel, which refers to different monarchies and emperors which have existed. And they worked it out that there was going to be a fifth monarchy yet to come after Rome and after Nebuchadnezzar and Assyria and Babylon and so on. There was going to be a fifth monarchy which would be uh, led by none other than Jesus Christ himself. I mean, other people had what they call millenarian, millenarian theories that, uh, about the second coming of Christ. Yes, but they referred to this more or less in a spiritual sense, you know. But not the fifth monarchy. No, no, they meant it in a physical sense. Jesus Christ was going to come back to earth and introduce the reign of the saints, which were them, of course. The reign of the saints. And this is, they stood for the overthrow of all oppressive monarchies. Everything. That was a very, very, very revolutionary movement. They were very active, the fifth monarchy, men, very active in the army. The new, Cromwell's new model, we were dealing with that. Especially a man called Major Major General Harrison. He was a prominent officer. He was a fifth monarchy man. There were many. There were many others. I haven't got time to deal with it. And then the last sect, which I wanted to mention before I finally run out of time, the Rantas. Yeah, not many. Not many of you have heard of the Rantas, but these guys were extreme revolutionaries. Extreme revolutionaries who arrived at the most uh, radical conclusions. Uh, I've got a, a few quotes here which I can't resist uh, quoting from one of the major spokesmen by the name of Abieza Kopp, who says the following. Kopp called uh, the abolition of property, the abolition of property, quote, a most glorious design, a most glorious design. And, and he called it to be replaced, private property should be replaced by equality, community, and universal love. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, he also one 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 of the one one of the person described them that quote they taught that it was quite contrary to nature to 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 appropriate anything but for any man and woman, and that there ought to be a community of a community of all things. This is communism. They also believed that the original sin, which is one of the main doctrines of the Catholic Church no longer existed. And therefore, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of the original sin of Adam and Eve that were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and all people then were, were, were evil by, by, by birth and so on. He said, well, they said, no, no, there's no such thing. They stood for the complete equality of women. And women played a big role in all these sects, but particularly the Raptors. One woman apparently turned up at a, at a prayer meeting, it's been an interesting meeting, without any clothes on. Because she said that clothes were private property, were against private property, um, uh, Eve didn't have any clothes, and, and uh, original sin didn't exist anyway. So, and people took, took this to be quite uh, natural. A bit more advanced, I think, than modern-day feminists, uh, if you ask me. Yes, well, no, women played an important role in the revolution. They really, this, was, this was an enabling thing that everyone felt suddenly. You, you have no idea the, the, the spirit of liberation which attended these sects. And these prayer meetings, which were mass meetings, by the way, mass meetings. 
There are many other quotes, interesting quotes, which I could give, but for, for lack of, of time. It's interesting that some of these ranters actually drew the conclusion that there was, there was no God, and that the Bible itself was false. They went so far as to burn the Bible, because they said, this, people say that this is, uh, this is the word of God, that it's a lie, it's not true. And most interesting in all, some of them drew the conclusion that God himself did not exist. That God was in everything and everybody. I'm God and you're God and it's his God. It's the same pantheism <clears throat> as uh, later put forward by Spinoza. It's very extremely advanced views for the 17th uh, century. Uh, there's one, one young shoemaker from St. Martin's. Apparently, every time he heard the word God, he burst out laughing. He burst, and he would turn around and say, I've got a quote here, that he believed that, quote, money, good clothes, good meat and drink, tobacco, and merry company are all gods. This is, the, this is close to atheism. There's no two ways about it. So that these movements really were of an extreme revolutionary character. Now, I think I've used up all the time for this particular lecture. Next week, I think I will deal more with the uh, characters involved in the revolution, but bear in mind that all revolutions really start at the top, despite what I just said. I'm setting the, 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 the scene for this, but you, we, we, we have left to one side the political conflict between the king and parliament, which acted as the, the initial uh, starting point, if you like, the, uh, the fuse that lit the, the, the powder keg. But the powder keg, the social powder keg, my friends, was already well lit and prepared, well prepared in advance by all the social accumulations which have gradually accumulated and tits until finally, in 1640 to 1642, they reached the tipping point. That point where quantity becomes quality and the whole situation erupts in a social and political explosion. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.